Man, let's, uh, let's get into the Word this morning. Hebrews chapter 8. I'll provide some words just of, of recap, just for the sake of context, because I wasn't here last week and we took a week off of Hebrews. Am I echoing a little bit? Am I echoing a little bit? Yeah, we'll see. Oh, well. So um, one of the words that we've talked about for the last several weeks is the word priest. And that word priest, um, when, you, when you think about that word, you may think of like Catholicism or think of like confessional, or maybe that's part of your background, or maybe you just see that on TV and you're like, that's what I think about when I think of the word priest. But that's really not the word that should come to mind when we're biblically looking at the word priest or priesthood. Instead, the word that I want to come to mind is mediator. And I've mentioned that several times to you guys because literally that's what the priesthood is. And that's why even in Catholicism, a priest, you come to confessional because they see him as a mediator between God and man. Now we know right here from what we're looking at that Jesus is that divine, wonderful, high priestly mediator. And so that's what we've been talking about for the past number of weeks. But I want you just to recalibrate your brain once again as we look at Hebrews chapter 8 to remember when you hear the word priest, you hear mediator. And Chris has already mentioned that in some ways. But when you hear the word mediator, you should think of conflict. There would be no mediator if not for the presence of some sort of a conflict. That's why parents are mediators. You have this sibling and this sibling, and they have a conflict. You come between and say, let's just work it out. You're the greatest of peacemaker, right? I'm sure you're so good at that role in your home. You're a peacemaker. But that's what a mediator is, a solver of conflict. And the reason the Bible is big on that word, priest, is because we need a mediator between us as unholy and sinful creatures and a holy and sinless God. We need a mediator. In other words, we cannot draw near to God in a relationship with Him, which is a big deal for anyone in this room who wants to go to heaven when they die. You need a priest whether you realize it or not. You need a mediator to come between you and a holy God to do something to make it where you can draw near to him. And so the author's proposal in the book of Hebrews is that there was once a priesthood and a law. Now, this is more familiar to them because they're a Jewish audience. But this priesthood and this law in the Old Testament through the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law, it could never save them. It was simply a reminder of their sins, not a removal of their sins. And so this whole argument that he's building is that now there's a better way. That God has done something to change the game. No longer is the priesthood just reminding you that you have a conflict, but instead we have a priest that went and made a way to remove the sin that has caused that conflict. And the, the verses that we've kind of hinged on the last few weeks is Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19. I'm going to read them again before we even get to our passage today. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19 says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside— that priesthood, that law, because of its weakness and uselessness, meaning it couldn't remove sins, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we, here it is, draw near to God. See, the game has changed in the name of Jesus. No longer just a mere reminder of sin, but now a removal of sin. And so what the author's trying to say to this audience, this Jewish audience who are steeped in tradition, maybe clinging to the old way, he is saying it's time to move on, to pivot from clinging to what cannot do, what only Jesus can do. And by the way, you may be thinking, I'm not a Jewish person. I don't have any problem with clinging to an old priesthood. I think there's a broad principle that we're going to land on, and that is simply this. The broader principle is that we need to move away from anything that we may cling to, that we may seek some sort of hope in or strive toward, because nothing in this world can do for you what Jesus can do and has done for you. Nothing in this world can do for you what Jesus can do for you and has done for you. 
That is a principle that we can drive home today, and we're going to land there at the end of our time. But before we get there, let's look at the Bible at Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6. All right? Let's look at it. Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6 this morning. It says this. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. We've been talking about the high priesthood of Jesus for, I really, I've lost count, and I've, I've joked about that now because you're like, can we move on to something else? No, we can't. In fact, I would say that the high priesthood of Jesus is in every chapter of your Bible, in some way, a form or fashion. So yeah, we're looking explicitly at it today. But th- this is the thing. I think that chapter 8, I love finding comedy in the Bible, and maybe it's just because I'm a nerd, and that's okay, I'm fine with that. In chapter 8, verse 1, I think is probably the funniest verse to me in the entire book of Hebrews. And the reason why is because we've been talking about the priesthood of Jesus for weeks and 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 weeks. And then, in true pastor sermon letter form, we get to chapter 8, verse 1, and the author says, now here's the point. If I, sometimes I talk to you guys on a Saturday, one of you, and I'll say, yeah, tomorrow I'm excited because here's the sermon. And then I'll tell you the sermon in like 45 seconds, and you'll say, good, I won't be there tomorrow. I won't come because you just gave it to me. And you're thinking, you talk every Sunday for 40 minutes when you could just say the point is this. Why don't you just do that? That's what this author's doing. That's the point. We could say, well, we could have just skipped the last two chapters and said, here's the point. You're right, we could have, but we didn't, and I know we're better for it. But I think it's so funny that the author, and it's a gift to us, really, because it's wonderful whenever an author, whether it be in a secular context or in the biblical context, tells you exactly the main thing that he's trying to tell you. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 8, verse 1. So I want to read it again. He says simply, now, the point in what we're saying is this. All these complicated things that we've been talking about, about again, Melchizedek and like tents and temples and all that stuff. Here's the main point. He says, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Here's the point. Finally, this is the point. He says, we have such a high priest. When it says, we have such a, what he's saying is, what the author means is that Jesus matches the description of this this theoretical, this ideal, this greater, this perfect priest that's been being unpacked for chapters. He's saying, we actually have that. Wouldn't it be nice if we had one that wasn't vain and empty and wasn't actually doing anything, these Levitical priests? Wouldn't it be nice if we had one after, after a different order, one that could bring real salvation, real forgiveness once and for all? Wouldn't that be great? We have such a high priest. This is what he's saying. It's truly a beautiful hammer that he's dropping. By the way, back in chapter 7, verse 26, he said, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He then goes on to say, Fitting that we should have such a high priest, one that is the ever living one that never stops mediating, the one who 
always did the will of God, who was never unworthy of the standard, standard of holiness, the one whose sacrifice accomplished permanent forgiveness of sins. We never needed another one. Wouldn't it be great if we had one? He says, it's fitting. We have one. The point he's saying is this, we have such a high priest. A cosmic conflict, and yet a beautiful, perfect, precious, greater mediator who has accomplished cosmic peace. I, listen, those are some big words. I want you to understand, what he's saying is that we finally have salvation. No more vain strivings. No more works-based religion. We have salvation because we have such a high priest. And again, written to Jews, latching on to a former way of life that was filled with vain striving. He's saying, move on from that. We have such a high priest. He mentions he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's kind of a weird statement. It's a cultural illustration that the author of Hebrews is using. You see, in the ancient world, uh, kings would surround themselves with powerful, noble men. And the person to the right of the king, the right hand of the king, was the most powerful and most prestigious noble in the entire court. What this passage is saying is that Jesus is at the Father's right hand. He's the most powerful. He's the most wonderful. And he's right there. That's what it says back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The second part of that verse says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love what Chris said just a moment ago about Jesus being crucified while he's on Calvary. And yet, I'm going to say it in, in different words, there's a chair that is vacant that's waiting for him in glory. That's where he, that's where he went, right? Is he now occupies a seat that is greater than any other Seat. It really gives new meaning or old meaning, I guess, to the term God's right-hand man. He's the right-hand man. New meaning, but truly old meaning. What it means is that Jesus is the greatest priest since he dwells in the greatest seat. He brings the greatest peace and ministers in the greatest place. Where is that? Where God dwells, heaven, the true throne room. So if you're taking notes this morning, I got a couple things that I want to leave you guys with today. Jesus is the God man. He is at God's right hand. And so we're going to see two things that as a result of who he is and where he is, what that means for us. He is high priest, number one. He's high priest in the true tent. He is high priest in the true tent. Now that imagery is weird. <laughs> like, like a Coleman, you know, tent that you throw out in the, in the woods and really have a good camp out. Nope. Not like that, okay? We're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like, that Jesus is the high priest in the true tent. Now, remember, we're coming to this as 21st century Americans, but they're coming to this as first century Jews, steeped in a very different history than you and me. Back in their history, when they settled in the promised land, again, generations and generations and generations prior to this audience, God's people, Israel, their ancestors settled in the promised land, and they built a structure. It was Solomon's temple. Go ahead and throw the, the temple image up there. So we've looked at this image, uh, I think, a couple of times here in the last few weeks, and this is just sort of an x-ray view of this dwelling place that they built for God among men. It was God among people, a place to meet with God, and specifically that room that's tucked back there was the Holy of Holies, the most special place that was exclusive. It represented the, the concentrated dwelling place of God. It was God among men, but before they had the temple, they had something called the tabernacle. Go to the next image. The tabernacle or tent, I'm going to use those two words interchangeably. The tabernacle was a massive tent, and it wasn't like the one that you go and do your camping with. I mean, it was a massive, ornate, intricate structure that God instructed them to go and build. And what was the purpose? It was the same purpose as the, tent, as the temple. It was God among men. It was God's dwelling place among his people. The difference is that it was mobile. Why was it mobile? 
because God's people were mobile. They were wandering in the wilderness, and God said, I need to be among you, and so I'm going to give you this instruction to go and build this structure, Moses. Take up the helm and build this structure so that I will be manifested and represented among my people. God's dwelling place, mobile among them. And so when you read that word tent, or maybe it says in your translation, tabernacle, don't think about the little hut that you build out in the woods. Think of that. Okay, and again, that's an x-ray view, just like the temple, but you see that it's very similar to the one that we saw just a moment ago, albeit stripped down just a little bit, but it's ornate, it's beautiful, it's overlaid with cedar and gold and fine linen. This is the image that should come to our minds when we hear that word tent, and this is what we see now in verse 2. Talking about Jesus, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, it says a minister, so Jesus is a minister in the holy places, that special room tucked back in the back, in the true tent or tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. That the Lord set up, not man. The true tent that God put there. Not the tent that would come to their minds when they hear this. And you kind of can see, in a sense, more of some, some juxtaposition between the two. You have this Old Testament tent versus now the true tent that he's describing. One was a revolving door of ministers that would go in, priests that would die and then die and then die. They would pass down this ministry versus one high priest who is forever ministering in that room. Right? You see the comparison there. One was built in the wilderness by Moses. One was built in heaven by God. One is a figurative throne room. The other is the literal throne room. One was representative of the dwelling place of God on earth. The other is the truest sense dwelling place of God in heaven. And both of these rooms were made for a purpose. And that was the priestly mediating activity of sacrifices. It was peacemaking mediation. Which brings us to the next couple of verses. Four, again speaking of the ministry of Jesus as a high priest. It says verse three. Four, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, speaking of Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now, what's happening here, and maybe this is bogging down, but just kind of hang with me, okay? The author is clarifying that the fundamental role of the high priest in his estimation is to carefully obtain access, drawing near to God on behalf of God's people. And the way that they did that was through sacrifices. That's why it says in verse 3 that he is appointed for a task. He's appointed to do something. What is that? Again, just to recap, there is a conflict. We come into this world not at peace with God, not in good standing with God, but because you and I struggle with sin from day one, we come into this world at conflict with a holy God. And so the high priest would go in mediating that cosmic conflict between holy and the unholy. I mean, it goes all the way back to God in the Garden of Eden. You remember the warning to Adam and Eve? He says, don't eat of that tree. For the day that you eat of it, you shall what? Surely die. You shall surely die. That's a promise. And a promise from a just judge has to happen. God was saying, if you sin, you will receive the death punishment. You will receive the death penalty. And that day, they began to die. And one day, Adam and Eve did find themselves in a grave. You see, man, and nothing has changed. You and I deserve the punishment of death. And maybe that's heavy. Maybe it's like, well, aren't you here to encourage us? Yeah, we'll get there. But first, we have to understand, there's bad news before we can arrive at the good news. The gospel is good news, but first we have to understand that there is grave bad news. And that is that the wages of sin, which all of us struggle with, is death. 
The wages of sin is death. It's separation from a holy God. Now listen. Before the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, that special room on the Day of Atonement, he had to wash himself. Why? Because God is holy and he wasn't. He had to wash himself. He had to put on special clothing. He had to bring burning incense to let the smoke cover his eyes from direct view of God. And he brought sacrificial blood with him to make atonement for sins. He would kill the animal, bring the blood in and say, God, I'm not even worthy to be here. Take this as an offering because of that on behalf of all of your people. And the high priest entered that special room of that tent for one reason, and that was to, as a mediator, purchase temporary access to God on behalf of sinful people. And he did so by not entering empty-handed, but with blood, sacrifices. It was a substitution. It was death in the place of death because the wages of sin is death, right? Something, someone had to die in our place if we were going to be accepted before a holy God. So let's reread verses 3 and 4 in light of that. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Blood, right? Why? Substitution. Thus it's necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. What this is saying, what we've already said for many weeks, is that Jesus is a priest of a different order. He doesn't bring animals. He brings something else. Earthly priests offered animals according to the law. Jesus' priesthood was different entirely. Not animals, but by his own blood. We've already talked about this, but Hebrews 7, verse 27, which is just before this, it says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up, not a goat, not a lamb, not a bird, when he offered up himself. Himself. Not animals, but his own blood. But also his ministry is in a different throne room, and this is really where we're going to drop the anchor for the rest of our time. Whereas Old Testament priests took that substitutionary blood into a tent, into a temple, Jesus took his substitutionary blood to the throne of God. They took it into a figurative throne room. Jesus took it to the throne, which is greater. The true, that's his whole point. Look at verse five. They serve, those sacrifices, that priesthood and that, fig, that literal tent on earth, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the one in the wilderness, the mobile one, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. He uses the word a copy, a shadow, those things. Meaning they're not real. You ever, you ever tried to grab a shadow? Can you do it? No, because it's not real. Right? This is casting a shadow and I can't, I can't grab that, right? That was a weird, I didn't plan to do that, but that was a weird demonstration. I just tried to grab a shot. Anyway, even if I were to make a copy of the Declaration of Independence, is that the real Declaration of Independence? No, it's a copy, and it would not be worth anything other than 10 bucks in a gift shop because it's not the real. It's a shadow. It is a copy. Even what's next is he emphasizes, verse 5, see that you make everything according to the pattern. There's a way to make it look like the thing. The tabernacle or the tent that was built by Moses, in other words, was modeled. Please don't miss this. It was modeled after something else, the heavenly tent. Look at that tent image again. Throw that back up there. Moses was instructed by God to build the tabernacle exactly as God had shown him. Have you ever gone and read those passages in Exodus about when they built the tabernacle? Isn't that a page turner? No, it's not. It's boring because all it is is numbers and 
materials. And you're like, I'm not a construction worker. And even if I were, I think this would be boring. But listen, for you, while that may not be riveting, understand that God had a very, very specific way because it had to look and be made of a very, very specific thing. The most precious materials that they could find on earth, that's what that room had to look like. That's what that tent had to resemble. It was as beautiful on earth as you could possibly make it. That's why Exodus 25, 9 says, this is God talking to Moses, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. How do you make it? Exactly. Exodus 25, 40, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. God gave them remarkably detailed plans. Why? Because it was a pattern. Remarkably detailed plans. From the very beginning, it was meant to signify a greater, don't miss this, reality. If I were to walk through a bunch of wet mud, you know what I would leave behind me? A pattern. Is that me left in that mud? No, but it is going to be a pretty good copy because I, in my flesh, have left it behind me. What God did is, listen, think about it this way. God says, you're going to make it this way. And it's not because he was just giving them an intricate blueprint, sort of this figurative say, well, you know, if, if I were there, what would I want it to look like? Build it this way. Man, make it a lot of gold and cedar and a lot of purple linens. It looks like purple linens, like, like an interior designer or something. That's not what God is doing. Listen, this is, it blew my mind when I read this this week or last week, because I started vomiting last week. When God, this is, listen, he didn't just say, let's just make a blueprint about something that I think would be nice. Listen, God in his infinite glory, in a way that I can't even comprehend, was in, in heaven, looking at his throne, looking at his space. We'd never seen. And he said, make it look like this. Can you just think about that for a second? You want to know what the glory of God looks like? The very best that he could do was to say, build it out of the most precious thing that you have. Make it massive. Make it as beautiful and intricate and wonderful as you possibly can. And it still just won't be good enough. God wasn't giving them some figurative plan. He was looking at the actual thing and said, you better make it look like this because this is what it actually, you want to honor me? Make it look exactly as I tell you. That's what a pattern is. It's a replica of the real. I've never thought about the tabernacle that way. A replica of the real, the actual. Does anybody know what Etsy is? Etsy is an internet shop, uh, like handcrafted things. Etsy's really cool. People make amazing things on Etsy. It's similar to eBay, but not really because it's sort of handmade and handcrafted, designs a lot of vintage items. Go check out Etsy one of these days. There's someone on Etsy that goes by the name Little Brick Lane, and they custom mini, they custom build mini home, mini, M-I-N-I, home replicas made of Legos. They, they, you, people will email them and they'll send them pictures and say, this is my home, build it out of Legos. And so check out these images of Little Brick Lane. These little things that they build, again, the house will be on the left, the Lego house is on the right. And they make it very nice and it looks really cool. Um, go to the next one. So this is kind of another picture. I think there's a couple more pictures you'll see up there. Even of the interior of the house, they build every bedroom on the, on the inside and it looks really cool. I mean, I th- it looks pretty amazing. And then the, the next one, if you will, uh, even your, your flower garden. So if you're into that sort of thing, go check out Little Brick Lane. Check this out, though. This is what blo- blows my mind. Those things, on average, cost uh, around $3,500. 
depending on the square footage of your house. It could be much more than that or much less than that. They average to be about between 25 and 35 pounds. That's not a small structure. I mean, it's small, but it ain't that small. It's a pretty big structure, 25, 35 pounds, and each home takes about 10 to 12 weeks to create. 10 to 12 weeks to create. And so Little Brick Lane uses these architectural plans and photographs to build the custom home models that are available with both exterior and interior details, and they use these brand new uh, unopened Lego brick pieces to do that. But I want you to understand something. Those aren't real. They're real copies. They're real shadows. But are those the actual thing? No. That bed looked pretty convincing. That flower garden looked pretty convincing. But it was a copy. It was a shadow of what was real. And it was interesting and intricate. But that Lego bed, though it is impressive, it cannot match the soft comfort of laying on the real thing. That little flower garden that you saw just a moment ago, it's really impressive and intricate. But it doesn't give the fragrance of roses and lilies, does it? See, God instructed Moses to build that tent a certain way because he was looking at the real thing. And he says, build it this way, and it still is just going to be a copy. The pattern is reflective of the true, but the true is infinitely greater than the pattern. And that wilderness tent was eloquent, but it could not capture the beauty of the real thing in glory. That figurative throne room was holy and special, but it could not reflect the true sinlessness of the real thing where God is truly enthroned. You see, those priests brought obedient but ultimately ineffective and ongoing sacrifices that could never measure up to the blood of the perfect Son of God who was slain and that by his blood has ransomed people for God. One is greater. That's the author's point. One is greater than the former. And so his whole thing is to say, Guys, let's pivot from this. Change direction and go to the greater thing that God has given to you, the priesthood of Jesus. Listen, there are many powerful expressions of God in this world, right? If you've procreated and had children, what a powerful expression of God in this world. You may see really amazing things and creations of man that God has had his sovereign hand over, amazing things of God. You may look at nature and just see the stars and the sun and the moon or the trees or the way that grass turns green every year and just see what a powerful expression of God around us. There are expressions of God that are amazing. Or even most recently, a spiritual expression of God. Worship gatherings, what appear at least, you could use the word revival, I don't care what word you use, there are real people that are really expressing and experiencing a powerful outflowing of God among them, whether it be at Asbury or Samford or anybody, anywhere else. And if you've been online and plugged in, you know what I'm talking about, that God is powerfully working around us. And again, we'll call it the Asbury Revival because that's probably what it's going to go down in history. But almost two weeks of nonstop worship has been happening in a little town of 6,000 in Kentucky. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I know the heart of every individual that filled that room, but I can say that I know the hearts of several that have. And it was worshipful. It's a powerful expression of God at work. I mean, we're talking about people driving hundreds of miles to cram 20,000 people into a town of 6,000. And even now, there are more outbreaks of that in other countries, Uganda and Romania, that God is doing something among us. A powerful expression of God. Even in our city, even this morning, right before I started preaching. Now, is that because he's doing things other places? I don't know. But I know God's at work. Amen? that God is at work, and there's no denying that God is powerfully expressing himself in our world, and we celebrate that, and may it never cease, but I want to tell you something. 
I'll give you the same encouraging word of warning that this author is giving these Jewish Christians. The most powerful expression of God is not tied to a room, whether it be in Asbury or anywhere else. It's not tied to a room on earth, but God's most powerful expression is tied to a room in heaven. Where Jesus is mediating at the right hand of the majesty on high. And any worshipful experience you have in this life is because of that one. We can meet with God, not because of what is happening in here, but because of what's happening up there. And revival is not tied to a worshipful building, but to worshipful and willing hearts that approach that throne through the saving and sustaining work of Jesus. And I'm not just confident, I'm certain that each and every time that we come together to worship, you can experience true revival in your heart. I'm not just confident of that. I'm certain of that. How can I have such confidence that God will draw near to us? Because that was decided the moment that he stepped out of heaven into a manger. How do I know that God is willing to meet with you? Because he's already promised that he has. He's done it. And he's promised that any time that you are willing He is there, church. You don't have to drive somewhere to experience a movement of God. You can do it right where you are sitting. I'm not trying to discourage the other. I'm simply saying you don't have to go to revival. Revival has visited you right here anytime you are willing to repent and believe in the gospel. We can be certain that God will draw near to us. But the far less certain question is whether or not you will choose to worshipfully and willingly draw near to him. Are you willing to lay your sin down, no matter the cost? Are you willing to turn from a pattern and a lifestyle to surrender it all to Jesus? Are you willing to sing when you come in here? Are you willing to engage the Spirit of God when you come into this place? Will you pray? Will you search? Will you draw near? There are many things that lure our affection. But will you pivot to the one that truly matters, that is God most high, Christ seated at his right hand? He's in the true tent, the true throne room. And man, we praise God for that. Second, and this is a much shorter thing that we'll look at, but that's that he is the right hand God man because he is enacting better promises. He's enacting better promises. That word enacting, and it's one we see, the reason I use it is because we see it in verse 6. But that word enacting, it simply means that he's putting something in place. He is establishing something. And so Jesus has put into place and established better promises. And we see this in verse 6. Let's check it out. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The words in, in verse 6, my translation says, but as it is. And actually in Greek, those, that word for as it is is one word, and it comes before the word but. And that word that's translated in my translation, as it is, is, is introducing a new way. It's, the word just simply means now. But it's a way of saying, we're moving on from this thing, but now there is a different thing. And so that too is a change of direction. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, the former is gone, but now it's like this. What is better has arrived. And this verse is sort of a summation and 
in a comparison, it really will kind of springboard us into our message next week. But this summation, this comparison that he's going to give is that Christ's ministry, which I'm taking this straight from verse 6, Christ's ministry is more excellent. That's a comparative word, is it not? More. It's more excellent. Why? Because it's a better covenant. That too is a comparative word. A better covenant. In other words, a better agreement that he mediates. It says the covenant that he mediates is better. And again, I'm just saying that to say that it implies that there were former mediators of an older and less effective covenant. Which one? Where we started. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. Four. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So back to verse 6. Why is this covenant better? Why is the covenant that Jesus mediates better? Because it is enacted on better promises, a better hope, a better, actually possible salvation. The question of the author, I love his heart because he's simply saying, why would the readers consider trading away what Jesus has done for them in the literal heavenly throne room in favor of the vain and pointless strivings of continuing to enter the copy, the shadow. In other words, why sleep on a miniature Lego bed that cannot match the embrace of the real? Why breathe in the scent of plastic Lego flowers that cannot match the fragrance of roses and lilies? And we kind of snicker at that and laugh. But listen, we laugh at this, but the point of the passage cannot be understated. Listen, what on earth could they turn to that could do for them what Jesus has done for them? What on earth, I mean it literally, what on earth could do for them what Jesus has done for them? What on earth could do for you what Jesus has done for you? So why are your affections so split in this life? Nothing in your cell phone can do for you what Jesus has done for you. Nothing in your workplace can do for you what Jesus has done. Nothing in your marriage, nothing in the premarital bed can do for you what Jesus has done for you. There is nothing, no entertainment can do for you what Jesus has done for you. Why give greater thought to the embrace of the culture than the embrace of your king? They don't love you like he does. Why give greater thought to the embrace of your so-called friends than the embrace of your father? They don't love you like he does. Why every day read hundreds of words on your timeline and little, if any, words of God's written lifeline? Social media has nothing for you of lasting worth. Why does that feeling of drunkenness, or what does that feeling of drunkenness do for you that the peace of obeying your Father in heaven doesn't do for you? It overpromises and underdelivers every time. It brings temporary and yet fleeing pleasure, but with sobriety comes regret and shame. And so I ask you again, what on earth could do for you what Jesus has done for you? Porn doesn't lift a burden, it heaps one on. No relief, only regret. And many have sought to be made full by money and possessions, and none of them can take it with them. But there is lasting treasure who awaits you in heaven. What on earth could do for you what Jesus has done for you? Then why are our affections so torn? Because the question has a rhetorical answer, right? Nothing. 
And yet Christ is so often an afterthought. I sat there and sang that song a moment ago. Oh, praise the name. And literally, knowing the sermon that I was about to preach, was picturing the throne room of God and just in such a real way, I just tried to picture Christ seated on a throne receiving the praise of these people in this room. But that reality is not only true of this corporate church gathering. Do you understand that your everyday life, you are before the throne of God. Are you living a life that honors him? He loves your singing. He loves your praise here. But just as much, he loves your praise there. Are your affections torn when you go out of this place? Nothing on earth can do for you what Christ can do for you. Why turn back, he's saying, to what promised much but delivered little? That's what sin does. It promises much and delivers little. It leaves shame and regret and emptiness every single time. But there are better promises. He's enacted better promises. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, which is what we've already seen. You know, the comparison or the contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament is interesting. We've talked about this Old Testament tent, tabernacle, temple, and yet we talk about the New Testament way of this real throne room that God has entered into on our behalf, Jesus has entered into. In the Old Testament, the message is come and worship. Come to the temple, and this is where you worship. But the message of the New Testament is go and worship. The message of the Old Testament is come and be made right for now. But the message of the New Testament is go because you have been made right forever. You see the Amazing comparison there. The message of the Old Testament is come and be reminded of your sin. But the New Testament message is go and be reminded of the removal of your sin. Can we just thank God for that? We worship differently in this place. And so, yes, I want you to be reminded of your sin when you come into this place. But more importantly than that is to be reminded when you leave here that it's nailed to a cross. It is done. That's why Jesus said it is finished. What an encouraging thought today. You don't have to come to this place to exclusively worship. We go out as worshipers. You know why? Because that's the point. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. One who has better promises, promises much, but doesn't underdeliver. He delivers much. You know, we sang that song a moment ago, and I mentioned jokingly that if you didn't like that, you're really going to hate heaven. I mean, I, but sincerely, that moment, if you could just bottle it up, right? That moment is merely a foretaste of glory divine. And what a feeling, right? But don't you know that the better promises are that one day we will gather not in a carpeted sanctuary. We will gather around a celestial throne. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. What on earth is worthy of you turning away from him?